I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I have a fun one today. I have uh, Jamie Leverton. Jamie, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, so Jamie is, is currently the CEO of Hot 8 Mining, which we'll, we'll touch on, but uh, has a storied past with a whole bunch of interesting companies along the way. Uh, you know, e-structured data centers, Kojiko Pier 1, National Bank, BlackBerry, Bell Canada, IBM Canada. So you've, uh, for someone that's 35, it's, it's, it's quite amazing that you've, uh, you've been able to get to this many uh, roles along the way. Yes, yes. That is a great way to open. Butter me up. <laughs> so, so Jamie, you know, we could talk about Hut 8 and I'm very interested in talking about crypto. Never had anyone talk about crypto on this podcast. So this will be a new topic, but I don't want to start that. I want to start way back. I mean, how, how did you get to this point in, in your career? What did that childhood look like that led to this kind of entrepreneurial journey at the beginning? All the way back to childhood. So I'm from a small town about two and a half hours east of Toronto, Belleville, Ontario. Know it. Absolutely. And I, I won't lie, I was in a bit of a rush to get out of Belleville and start, I don't know, adulthood, I guess. So I, um, I left Belleville when I was 17. I went to the University of Ottawa. I actually didn't even know to declare a major. So I was put into political science, which is what Ottawa U did at that time if you didn't declare a major. And then eventually I figured out to add on on uh, psychology and ultimately finished with an, uh, an undergrad with a double major in psych and poli-sci at the ripe old age of, well, 19 is when I was going into my, my last year and realized that I didn't I didn't really have applicable skills to go into the workforce with a psychology degree, a political science degree, and a whole bunch of waitress and bartending experience. So I went to the guidance office at University of Ottawa, and they put me through a whole bunch of interest and aptitude tests. And ultimately, they spit out the top 10 careers that they thought I would be uh, happy and successful in. And seven out of those 10 were business related. So they got it right. <laughs> they did get it right. And luckily I listened to them because certainly I had hoped to take a gap year, but instead I went out to uh, to Dalhousie University in Halifax and did my master's in business administration with a concentration in marketing informatics. And uh, and really that's, that's particularly important to my story for two reasons. First, I was lucky enough to grow up with computers in the house. My dad's an engineer. So I always I started off on a VIC 20 and then a Commodore 64. And I I absolutely loved computers. I loved kind of coding really intricate lines of code to do very basic functionality. But when I ultimately decided to go and do my MBA, this program that Dell had was the only of its kind back then. And I thought, what a great opportunity to do an MBA, but also be able to you know, play with computers along the way and and get really into the data side of things, which I have always had a passion for. And ultimately, that program is what led to me starting a career in tech. IBM liked that combination of business and data. And uh, so they brought me from Halifax to Toronto. 
And uh, that's where my career started, uh, working for IBM in 2000. And then it progressed from there. Uh, I I spent almost the first 10 years of my career at IBM and then decided I wanted to go Canadian owned and operated. So all of the entities I've been with since leaving IBM have been Canadian owned and operated uh, mostly in the um, in the tech world. And uh, I would say for the second half of my career, I really started to focus on transformation mandates. So going into uh, companies or business units that were struggling, that needed somebody to drive a growth mandate. And ultimately, that's kind of how my career has evolved. That's why there are so many logos on my on my resume. And, and that's ultimately how I got to, to this role here at HUD8 Mining. Bitcoin mining, which is what we do, very similar to the traditional data center space, which is where I spent um, many, many years in my prior Bitcoin career. And so that's that's a long walk to get to where I am today. So taking back to, to small town, it's so interesting. You're probably the seventh, seventh or eighth person in a row that I've interviewed on the podcast that all of them have come from small towns. Really? What, what is it? that you think may lead those individuals that come from such small towns to, you know, success in the entrepreneurial world? Is it, is it, is it, is it the, you know, the nonconformist view of, you know, everyone kind of living in Toronto thinking the same way? Like, wh- what is it that, that you think that that sort of childhood gave you personally in, in driving some of that success? I think people from small towns really have no one to depend on but themselves. When you leave that town, you leave the network of people that that know you and care about you. And ultimately, you have to make your own way in a big city where you're completely unknown. So I think, I think small town folks tend to be, you know, we're grinders. We're, we're forced to kind of pave our own way and and learn how to do that on our own and ultimately be accountable to ourselves to make it happen. So so akin to like the, the, the immigrant story. <laughs> just, I don't just, know just, about just that. A, local, a, a local immigrant story. Sure. I, yeah. <laughs> there, there are some parallels, but certainly I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't want to suggest that um, that our path is anywhere near as challenging as uh, as that of somebody coming completely from a different country. So, so you mentioned your father was an engineer. You know, you you've landed up in a, a kind of a hybrid engineering-minded, you know, career as well as business-minded career. You know, how how much did your parents' influences, uh, you know, seeing them do what they do, affect what ultimately you led? Uh, you know, that led led you to where you are. For sure, it had an influence. My mom, my mom worked as well. She was an, an executive at um, at a private business college in Belleville. They both traveled a lot for work. Um, and so I, I was raised in an environment where, you know, both parents had very busy, active careers and, and were traveling a lot. And that was the normal in our home. Um, and so I think I always had a vision for myself that looked somewhat similar. Yeah. You, you mentioned that you took your psychology and political science degree <laughs> and that it, it was, you know, you were ill-equipped to join the business world. Well, I was ill-equipped to get a job. Okay, that's what, that's where I want to go because I think that psychology yeah. is an inc- and, and political science is an incredible background. You know, I think people people overestimate finance and business and underestimate all the other skills. And from my perspective, being a CEO is more psychology than it is anything. 
<laughs> I, I would absolutely agree with you. I tap into both psych and poli-sci more often than whatever I learned in business school. I think your day-to-day application of psychology and political science is much more valuable in any kind of real-life scenario, particularly the, for the first half of my career when I was in big corporations trying to navigate hierarchy and power structures, that poli-sci degree really, really came in handy. So I don't, I do not at all regret my, um, my undergrad choices. I'm actually, I'm very grateful for them, but, but I, I don't pretend that it was intentional. Yeah. Hey, I'd rather be lucky than good. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Takes a little bit of both. I think. Yeah. So, so you mentioned your next degree was in, in marketing informatics. For those, for those that don't fully grasp what that means, Maybe just put some some context and examples around it, you know the, the, that that particular skill set and how it plays a role. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think they call it that anymore. It was it was that was in 1998 that 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 I started that program, and uh, marketing informatics was really kind of the precursor to what would now be considered business intelligence or big data. So back then it was it was actually quite basic. We were we were looking at patterns in data in data. We were working with um, who was SaaS Enterprise Miner was the big product by then and back then. And you were really just looking for patterns and how you could predict consumer behavior based on uh, past data sets. And really <laughs> a very rudimentary precursor to what uh, what you now see happening in the world of artificial intelligence. You know, you hear about data science every day and the importance of data. I mean. I look at Amazon as a prime example of, of, of why it's going to be very, very difficult to compete with them when they own that, those sorts of data sets. You, you, were, you said you were passionate about data quite early on. What was it that you were passionate about? And did you, did you ever foresee it becoming such, such a, uh, a crucial instrument in, in businesses today and how they operate? I'm, I'm one of those people that is just naturally inclined to logic. I'm constantly looking to to find ways to look at problems based on as objective uh, a data set as possible. And so certainly what hard data does, and when you're looking for patterns, there is nothing more objective um, than something that can ultimately be broken down into ones and zeros. So I think I think that's what it was for me. It was just, it lent itself to my personality. I think I, I, my husband and kids might, uh, <laughs> might might tell you the same. I tend to be very objective, uh, not overly emotional. I compartmentalize things, and so I think I think data science kind of lends itself to somebody that looks at the world in that way. You know, I, I still think that we're underestimating the role that data is going to play in our lives. You know, people talk about it, but I don't. A, I don't think people most people understand what it actually means. And I think it's going to have a, a far more meaningful impact on all of our lives in an exponential way moving forward. What's your view on that? Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. I think I think it's easy for people to kind of trip into the dark side of that and and you know the the, the big brother type of fear comes in when you when you think about a, a continued proliferation of of data and and how it's going to continue to interact. In all of our lives, I do obviously being in the in the world of digital assets, which I kind of see as one of the, the most important final frontiers of digitization of our world, which is really digitizing money. 
that um, I think that is going to probably be one of the biggest catalysts for that hyper digitization that uh, that you're alluding to. You know, like you, I would classify myself as a very objective, logical person. But you know, as you become, you know, it's one thing to to, to be like that when you're making decisions for yourself. But as you become a more and more senior leader within organizations, sometimes that objectivity can get in the way when you're dealing with people who are, are inherently subjective in, their, in, in the way that they act. How do you balance that desire for objectivity and, 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 and you know, proper data and then have to you know, take that hat off and just deal with the emotional side of business? Because you know, like, I, like we alluded to earlier, a huge component of being a CEO, especially one that's involved in transformation and growth, is going to be dealing with people. Even in dealing with people, I think I think data plays an important part. I mean, you can't, I'm not somebody that lets emotions completely dictate behavior. And I think data provides a good way to ground a conversation um, and and soften the edges of, of emotion. The flip side to that is I also listen to my gut and I'll often listen to my gut, but then go to the data for us for a validity check or a sanity check on it. I think a good leader has a bunch of different tools in their in their toolkit for sure, but data has to be an important part of, of decision-making and leadership. Yeah, I, I totally agree it plays a role, but I think unfortunately data is not a cure-all for irrationality. And- uh, <laughs> No, no, of course not. But yeah, I, wish it, I wish it was, <laughs> personally. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't have data at all, it's really hard to, to get you into a, a grounded conversation of, of any kind. Otherwise, I mean, honestly, if, if two people are going to approach conversation with differing viewpoints and nothing but emotion to back it up, I don't know that it's going to be a productive use of anybody's time. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So now we're at Hut 8. For those that don't know what, what, what Hut 8 does, maybe you can just elaborate a little bit. And I'm going to I'm going to tell you something that's going to make your jaw drop. But in my current portfolio, I have zero dollars of cryptocurrency. So I want to know what I'm missing and how dangerous of a decision that is. <laughs> well, let's start with headache first. <laughs> well, I am not one to give financial or investment advice. My personal portfolio certainly has more exposure to crypto than yours does. I so first of all, Hut Eight. Hut Eight is um, is a Canadian headquartered company. We're headquartered in Toronto. All of our operations are based in Canada. We are publicly traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, and we recently uh, dual listed onto the Nasdaq as well. We primarily are a Bitcoin mining company, although we also have a bit of hosting that we do, and we also this year have started mining Ethereum as well. We also have the largest amount of self-mined Bitcoin on our balance sheet of any public company in the world, which I think is such a, it's, we've got such a wonderful story for a Canadian tech company that, um, that a lot of people still haven't heard of. So, so how did you land up in that world, right? I mean, you know, crypto is a fairly new concept. No, the, the diehards have known about it for a long time, but the yeah. average... The average person has only probably taken it seriously over the last five to 10 years, not even. Oh, for sure. Yeah. The Bitcoin white paper has celebrated its uh, 13 year anniversary yesterday. So the industry itself is certainly very, very new. I got, well, 
in 2017, um, I was working in the traditional data center business, and that was the last bull market for Bitcoin. We just were inundated with calls, people looking for a lot of space and a lot of power all at the same time. And that kind of triggered me going down the, the rabbit hole, if you will, on what was driving this, this big spike in demand for data center space and power. And ultimately, it was, uh, it was Bitcoin miners. So that's when I started to explore the world of blockchain and Bitcoin and, and crypto. And then ultimately, of course, the, the bear market came and, and um, kind of a lot of attention drew away from, this, from the space. But I stayed, uh, I stayed close to it because I, I was a fundamental believer in, in Bitcoin as a, uh, well, frankly, as the hardest known store of value in human history. And I believed that, um, that it was here to stay. And so when I got the call last summer to explore the role as, um, as CEO of HUD8, um, I, uh, I just couldn't say no. It was an opportunity to take over a publicly traded tech firm that was, I thought had the opportunity to be an absolute leader in, in this space. And, and the reality of Bitcoin mining is it's ultimately giant server farms, not dissimilar to what I would have been familiar with in the traditional data center space. It's a different type of, of construction, but ultimately the motion, we run our sites 24 hours a day, seven days a week with our own staff. It's a whole bunch of power applied to a whole bunch of compute, uh, but ultimately instead of customers as, at the end of of that uh, that computer that workload we have um, our output is is Bitcoin or Ethereum. So so you specifically mentioned store of value, and when I have this discussion with others, I can actually buy that. I can buy that Bitcoin is a store of value. Where I get lost is this idea of currency. What, what's your view? Because you you, you specifically use those words. I did. Um, I think Bitcoin has the potential to be used as currency in the way we think of traditional fiat-based currency today uh, over time as the volatility dampens. That said, El Salvador has legalized Bitcoin as, or has, <laughs> Bitcoin is now legal tender in El Salvador, as is the US dollar. Um, and, and it's able to be used as a, as a currency due to rails that are put on top of the Bitcoin network that allows for faster processing than the traditional um, Bitcoin blockchain directly could do. So the ability for it to be used for day-to-day -day transactions with those rails is now real. I do make the case, though, that it's it's best used today as a store of value because you do have significant day-to-day -day volatility still as the uh, as the asset class is, is new. It's only uh, 13 years since the white paper, as I mentioned. But I think over time, as that volatility dampens, that's when the use case will really present itself in a, in a significant way for Bitcoin as currency. But today, particularly with the backdrop of inflation that on a scale that we've never seen before, really driven by the the COVID-19 pandemic, where every central bank in the world had to look at, at at measures to drive liquidity into their into their economies to keep things going. Ultimately what we've what we've seen is is 
a global scale printing of fiat currency, which is now driving an inflationary environment. And the business case to be made for Bitcoin as a hedge against that inflation is incredibly solid. We know that Bitcoin will only ever have 21 million coins in existence. We know the last coin will come into existence in the year 2140, and that can't be adjusted. It can't be reprogrammed. It, you, you cannot debase the value of Bitcoin because it's it's ultimately predetermined as to the number that, that will be in existence, unlike any other store of value in human history. When you speak to critics or hear critics uh, talk about whether it be Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, what are the common themes that you think that they're missing or underestimating? Oh, I, I think I think when you lump Bitcoin into a bucket with other cryptocurrencies and you you treat them all as the same thing, you're definitely missing um, some key principles. Bitcoin is the is from my perspective is the only digital asset that's truly decentralized. The founder of Bitcoin is unknown. They are anonymous. And there is no central point of control or, or authority over Bitcoin. It is truly uh, decentralized in, and cannot be manipulated, which isn't the case when you think about other digital assets. Ultimately, like, a, like Ethereum, as an example, you would say that's not truly decentralized? I would say it's not truly decentralized. Vitalik is one of the key developers of Ethereum, and he's He's absolutely still incredibly active in the Ethereum community. And, um, and the developers have the ability, as, as we've seen them engage in multiple times in the history of Ethereum, to, uh, to rewind the clock or to uh, manipulate the code in various ways for various reasons, which um, is incredibly difficult to do with Bitcoin because you need 90% consensus of the entire Bitcoin blockchain in order for changes to be made, which has only happened a very small handful of times. So switch gears because you know I have someone who knows about digital assets far more than than than, than I. This concept of NFTs, this this one is weird to me. Uh, I mean, I, I I understand it in theory the way I understand collecting baseball cards in theory, right. but the limitlessness of it and the values of some of these things are just in my opinion, ridiculous. And, you know, what's, where's this going to land? Right. I mean, I mean, do you have any idea? I have no idea. Yeah. It's certainly a craze, I would say. I don't connect with it, but I think that the younger generation, and obviously I'm aging myself in that comment, but uh, I think the digitally native Generation connects with it in a in a completely different way than than I do or potentially than I could. So yeah, I don't know. I'm not the right one to ask. It's uh, I, I don't I don't get it myself. Yeah. So let's let's take a let's take a step back. You spoke about how you love mandates that uh, you know are about transformation and growth. What is it about? you know, maybe your character or, or who, like what kind of an individual do you think is better suited for that versus I know some great entrepreneurs that are very, very good at turnarounds or distressed, right? They're, they're very different people. So, so what is it about transformation and growth that, that resonates with you? And, and, and what are the kinds of individuals that you would think listening to this podcast say like, Hey, if you're this kind of a person, this is look into this area. Oh, geez. I don't know. I think, um, 
when I, when I did my MBA, my favorite part about it was the case studies. Like I, I really, and when I was a kid, you know how you do like crosswords or uh, word searches, I would buy books of logic problems. That's what I like to do. I like to, I like to fix things. I like to grow things. I'm not, not as much an operator. Like I, I thrive outside of my comfort zone. So I'm, I'm constantly looking to, to push and, and test and rethink that what I'm doing and look at things in, in new ways. Whereas I think there are a lot of people that are, that are really good at, at operating and running and steady state. And it, and I think the personalities involved are just are quite different. Steady state, I lose interest in steady state. I don't know. And I, I like to create value. I think I feel like I like to do things that, that are, that are difficult. I like to, I like to think that I'm, I'm helping in a way that is difficult. I don't know. So, so you, you like to be up at night thinking about stuff. <laughs> oh my God. I do not sleep much at all. Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I was going to say like listening to you talk about what you like, it's, it's very similar to myself. And I, I always say I'm not an operator and people always say like, but you're, you're a CEO and you're growing a company. Like you've got to be an operator. I'm like, no, you don't actually. You have to have really good operators around you. Oh I'm yeah. Not an operator. That's right. I think That's people right. get that confused. Yeah. <laughs> you have to know who you are. Yeah. Um, I think the best visionaries are sometimes the worst operators. Absolutely, for sure. And I don't actually see myself as a visionary either. I think like I'm not an entrepreneur. I've never had that big idea. I'm more like a get your hands dirty in someone else's problem type of person. The visionaries, I I have so much respect for, but it's it's not me. Like I'm not I'm not a dreamer. I'm definitely a more of a, a fixer but i maybe one day i'll get a big idea i don't know yeah but but, the, but that, that you just mentioned something that, that i preach it's the number one thing i tell anyone around me is you have to know who you are and you have to you have to really be self-aware to know who you are i you know i've said this a million times on my podcast i believe self-awareness is the superpower that you know unleashes your potential because if you don't know what you're not good at and you, and you don't know what you're good at you can't double down on your strengths so i, I truly <laughs> believe that self-awareness is the key to unlocks potential and, and I think self-awareness is so important, not just in a in a work environment, but in a in a whole self environment, in a home environment. I think I think a lot of women in particular um, struggle with that kind of work life balance, and not just knowing who you are at work, but knowing who you are at home, and and how you can be your best self and your most most authentic self in in both places without without feeling bad about it. I think that I learned that kind of early on in, in um, my journey with motherhood. I was, I was actually quite terrible at maternity leave. And I, once I made my peace with that, it was, it was entirely enlightening. Like I'm just not wired that way and that's okay. Not everybody's wired the same way, but I think it's such an important journey to know who you are and, and make your peace with that. So this will be the last thing I, I ask you, because I, I love this idea of making peace with it. What does that process actually look like? Like when people always say things like that, which I think are so true, and I understand what you're saying fully, you know, I've accepted who I am after many years of not accepting who I am, but people always say like, well, how do you do that? What's the mm -hmm. process of doing that? I don't, 
look, it's not. I, I have a hard time answering it. That's what yeah. I'm asking you. <laughs> I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a big process. I think it's it's a whole bunch of micro processes, like, you know, I don't bake for my kids' school bake sales. In the beginning, I felt like that was something I had to do, and then I was like, no, no. Who are you? Are you somebody that is good in the kitchen, that is patient, that has an hour or two hours that can be carved out of a day to prioritize that? No. Am I going to be judged by other people because that's not who I am? No. So, and if you are, then I just had to stop judging myself because that's the only person that was standing in the way of that kind of thought loop. And there's a hundred different examples I could give of that, but it's there. You don't make your piece at a big macro level. I don't think it's, it's uh, yeah. kind of take those little things and, and they, and they build on each other. Yeah. I do think it comes with time and, and maturity. Like there's no, that's the process of life. And uh, unfortunately, right. Cause I think there's a lot of people that struggle with certain like different levels of uncomfortableness. And I, and I kind of tell people just like live with it get better every day and eventually you'll feel more comfortable. Like, I don't know how or when or, or why, but you will. And I, I think, I think having role models that are, that are open and transparent about, you know, the choices that they've made, the, their journey of um, making their own piece. I think you can, there's a lot to be gained from that. And I think one of the nice things about our generation is we're not pretending that we're super people or that we're something that we're not. I think there's a lot more authenticity in leadership today, which hopefully will pave a better path for the next generation. Yeah. If, if they get rid of their, their, their Instagram and all the other things that make them, uh, you know, judge themselves against others because <laughs> those are dangerous things in our society, in my opinion. I don't, I do not disagree with that. Yeah. Well, Jamie, thank you so much. This was this was great. You know, I think I'm going to have to at some point bite the bullet and, and get some crypto in my uh, in my portfolio or Bitcoin, not crypto, Bitcoin in my portfolio. I definitely recommend Bitcoin <laughs> as a different type of education versus other crypto. And the best place to start is it's a book called The Bitcoin Standard. It um, it really gives a wonderful foundation for kind of what is Bitcoin, what is blockchain, how does it relate to the history of money and and stores of value? I think it's a really, really, really good baseline. And then you can figure out where you want to dig in from there. But it's, in my opinion, it's the best place to start. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And, and for those that would like to follow along in your journey, I mean, obviously, Hot 8 is easy to find, but is there a way that they can keep track of of, of you in particular? I know LinkedIn, uh, anything else? I'm also very easy to find. Obviously, my first name is spelled uniquely J-A-I-M-E, Leverton. The only Levertons that I've found on social media in Canada are my dad and my brother and myself. So by all means, you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or it's simply jamie at hutatemining.com. Thank you very much, Jamie. Really appreciate your time. Until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.